You ever feel like everything you know about God or everything you've been taught, you heard, especially if you grew up in church, you ever feel like all that's just rumbling around up here in your mind? That, that you have all this information about Him and stories about Him and teachings from Him and about Him, but at the end of the day, does, it, does all of that ever feel far from you? Like it's sometimes in your mind more than it is in your heart. You ever felt that way? Have you ever struggled to feel the closeness of God, the reality of God, that, that tangible, palpable presence of God in your life? You ever wondered at times if it's all true or not? You ever questioned that? Are the stories about him true? Or is it, is it all just stories, just old writings that don't really apply to us today? Because I have. I've felt that way at times in my own life, growing up in the church, being a Christian. It's not an enjoyable place to be. In fact, it can be quite unsettling when the voice of the one that you've devoted your entire life to seems to fall silent. When the close, uh, intimate fellowship that once sustained you now feels distant, far removed, even from your prayers. When the reality of God working in your life and in your circumstances and in your relationships seems like nothing more than a, a collection of memories. And you begin to wonder, was it even true? Or was it all just wishful thinking? Maybe I didn't really experience what I thought I did. Maybe it was all just emotion mixed in with good intentions and some really great stories. I, I think there are Christians who experience times in our lives like that, whether we want to admit it or not. I think there are a lot of us who do. I think we go through periods of time when God seems far from us. Time, times when we may even doubt the reality of his presence in our lives at all. And listen, that's nothing new. It's certainly not unique to us today. In fact, as long as there have been people following God, there have also been people among them who at times in their lives have felt far from God, right? Because we, we don't always see his hand moving in our lives. We cannot always discern his voice and the evidence of his working in our circumstances is not always obvious. But you understand that does not mean that his hand is not moving or that his voice is not speaking or that his will is not unfolding in your life. Because first of all, God is never idle. John 5, 17, Jesus said, my father is working until now and I am working. Some translations say my father is working, is always working, and so am I. Not only is he always working, but he's always working on your behalf. In Romans 8, 28, which we read not too long ago, Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So even though we don't always see or understand what God is doing, just as Jesus once explained to his disciples, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand, John 13, seven. Now how often has that been the case in your life, in my life? Right, when we're finally able to perceive the work of God only in retrospect, sometimes long after, our difficult circumstances have passed and you look back and only then understand what he was doing at the time on your behalf when he seemed so far from you. You see, when all is said and done, God is not far from us. Even when we cannot see his work or hear his voice or feel his presence. King David once wrote, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Psalm 145, 18. 
God is not far from us, even when he seems to be an eternity away, which has never been more clearly demonstrated than in our story today as we begin working our way through the book of Esther, which we did once six years ago uh, through a lot of prayer and meditation about where to go next since we just finished Romans. I felt directed by the Spirit of God uh, that it was the right time to revisit Esther's story as there, there are so many parallels between God's people then and God's people today, particularly in the context we're in today. And, and as this story, uh, this magnificent story, stands in the annals of history as a clarion call to all who may ever doubt the presence and power and working of God to the satisfaction of his own will in our lives, that he is in fact always working, that he's always present, that he will always accomplish his perfect plan for us even when he seems distant and silent. And yet there's even more to this book because not only is it full of relevant and poignant lessons for us concerning the providential and sovereign, albeit invisible hand of God working in our lives, believe it or not, Esther is also very much a part of our own heritage as his church. Because if the, listen, if the, the forces that were conspiring against the Jews in this story, if they had succeeded, the entirety of the Jewish people would have been wiped off the face of the earth, which means God's saving work through his people would have come to an end, which means no fulfillment of God's plan in and through Christ and therefore no gospel and no Christian church. Okay, so just keep that in mind. Nothing less was at stake. If it wasn't for Esther and specifically for God working in and through her, even when she couldn't see it or feel it or even sense it, if it wasn't for what God did for her and through her, then we wouldn't be having this discussion today. We wouldn't be having church today. If it wasn't for God's unseen hand, working in ways that seemed an eternity away from the interests of his people, as we're going to see. And so as we, we read this story together, it's important we should never lose sight of the magnitude of significance that these events hold, not just for the Jews, but for all who follow Christ today. And really, uh, this first chapter, just so you know, is, is really a long introduction to the rest of the story. This is really just a big setup for the rest of the story. Esther isn't even mentioned in the first chapter, so it's, it sets the tone for the rest of the story, the chapters that we're going to get into in the coming weeks. So let's turn there together to the book of Esther. This will be a little different than what we're used to, again, in this, this first chapter today, and, and just some backstory here to set the scene. The Jews of Judah and Jerusalem were taken into exile by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar when he sacked the city and burned the temple in 586 BC. And then later in 539 BC, Cyprus II, or Cyrus the Great, uh, conquered the Babylonian Empire, overthrowing King Belshazzar, a successor of Nebuchadnezzar, with spectacular uh, military strategy. It's described uh, by the Greek historian Herodotus in about 450 BC. Incredible story. It's mentioned also in Daniel chapter 5. And then about 50 years or so before the time of Esther, Cyrus makes a decree allowing the Jews to return to their homeland and rebuild their temple using uh, Persian resources to do so. And yet many of the Jews did not return to Jerusalem. And instead they, they chose to remain in the land of their captivity, which plays significantly into God's plan here, as we're going to see. And so it was Cyrus who founded the Achaemenid Empire, the Achaemenid Empire, the Persian Empire, which ruled for about 200 years until Alexander the Great conquered Persia in 330 BC. 
So during that 200-year period of Persian rule, King Ahasuerus, he's the lead character in this first chapter of our story, was the fourth king of the Persian dynasty between the time of Cyrus the Great and Alexander the Great. He was better known in the Greek as Xerxes the First or Xerxes the Great. So everybody apparently was great, okay? <laughs> I don't get it. And he ruled from 486 to 464 BC during the time of Esther, while some of the Jews are, again, still remaining uh, uh, in their land of captivity. Some are returning to Jerusalem. So that's not only a little bit of historical context for the story and an introduction to the Persian king at the center of the narrative today, but it also highlights the fact that the Jews in this story were born into exile. Okay, at this point, the, the folks we're looking at were born into exile because even though they were given the choice to leave if they wanted to, that's why many of them stayed. It's all they knew. So when Esther was born, she was born into exile as it was close to 100 uh, years or so earlier before her birth when the Jews were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so that's all is set up. Let's start to read it together, uh, chapter 1, with the first four verses. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. That's a party, right? So King Ahasuerus rules over the land from ancient India, which was the land around the Indus Valley. It's uh, actually present-day Pakistan, all the way to ancient Ethiopia, which was the land just south of Egypt, which is actually present-day Sudan. So this is a massive territory, and the king sits on his throne in Susa, one of the four capital cities of Persia, which is a modern-day city of Shush in southwestern Iran. And the Persian kings, along with the royal court, would typically only winter in Susa because the heat was unbearable in the summer. So Ahasuerus decides to spend the winter there preparing for his invasion of Greece, which is known today as the Battle of Thermopylae, where the Persians ultimately failed to conquer the Greeks. The point being, uh, there's this massive six-month-long party thrown by the Persian king in Susa, uh, which was not um, just a way to occupy their time during the winter or just to thank his loyal supporters because he's a nice guy. This, this epic party served a very strategic purpose for the king because he was attempting to build support for the coming invasion, which is why the military and key leaders were all at this celebration. So Ahasuerus had already put down rebellions in both Egypt and Babylon in the first three years of his reign. Uh, so you better believe he wanted to be certain that he had the loyalties of the military and key leaders before launching another major offensive into Greece. And Herodotus, the historian, records a speech given by the king where he promises to richly reward the leaders and armies who come to him the most prepared and equipped for battle. So verse four says that he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So he throws this massive party to show off all of his riches, why? in order to prove to everyone there that he could make good on his promises he was making to extravagantly reward those who supported him the most, right? So the king has an agenda here. This isn't just a random party. And the success of his uh, agenda all hinges on his ability to present himself to all these people in a positive light, 
right, to the most important leaders and militaries in his whole kingdom. So losing face was definitely not on the king's agenda, right? He desperately needed to impress everyone who was participating, so he pulls out all the stops. Let's keep reading, verses five through nine. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So again, uh, this is the epitome of opulence, right? And for seven days at the end of the six-month-long celebration, the king holds a feast in the court of his palace. And the custom at such celebrations was for everyone to drink only when the king drank. But Ahasuerus suspends that tradition for this feast so that everyone can drink as much and as often as they want to ensure that everybody's having a great time, right? And so he's also breaking with traditional Persian practice by having the queen hold a separate feast for the women, probably uh, because of the sheer size of this party. There, there probably wasn't room for everyone in the king's court at the same time. So the king is doing everything he can here to impress. He spared no expense and held nothing back save one thing. There was one more prized possession that he had yet to show off, one more splendid belonging to impress his guest, and it was his greatest asset of them all, or so he thought. Let's read it, verses 10 through 12. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abiktha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. So the plot thickens. The king decides to show off his most impressive possession, or at least that's how he apparently treats her. This is, this is the definition of trophy wife. Let, let me summons my wife so I can parade her around before a horde of drunken men at my biggest party to impress them with her beauty. It's a shocker that she refuses, right? Uh, apparently to him it was because he's furious. All of the preparation, all of the expense, all of the pomp and grandeur of his royal court, months of decadent celebration, he has shown off everything that he can possibly think of. The king is hitting it out of the park with his guests and then this happens. His own wife shuts him down in front of everyone. Right, everyone that he's so desperate to impress. You see, this is more than an embarrassment for the king. This is a real problem because all of this effort and time and expense has been expended to make an important impression on key people for the upcoming battle to show them the king's seemingly endless resources and power and authority, and yet all that it takes to wreck the entire plan is his wife refusing to play along. 
And so knowing that he must do something decisive in order to try and save face with all these people, the king calls his official advisors together, men who were versed in the law. So let's finish the chapter uh, 13 through 22. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him be Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marsena, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persian media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who's better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike, this advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So when a royal decree was written, it could not be repealed. In verse 20, when it describes the decree made by the king, the original Hebrew, it's the word pithgam. It's a Persian word that refers to a judicial Sentence. So this wasn't just new information from the king's court. This was a legal action that was irrevocable as described in verse 19. In other words, there's a finality to this order given by the king that, that first of all, Vashti was never again to come before the king, which interestingly is a bit of a paradox that her punishment for refusing to come before the king was that she's not allowed to come before the king. I love that part, but uh, the fact that this royal order was also permanent actually means that effectively he's giving her a legal divorce, and it's the end of Vashti's queenship, which was intended to send a message to all the women throughout the kingdom that you'd better honor your husbands. <coughs> and so the king is left to find a new queen. And yet as interesting as all of this may be, what bearing does it have on God's people, right? <clears throat> I mean, who cares about a pagan king's divorce? <clears throat> He's going to marry someone else, and everything's going to keep going, right? For the Jews, I doubt they were waiting with bated breath <clears throat> to see what would happen next. Think about it, when, it, when a scandal, uh, when there's a scandal in the White House, with presidents and wives and mistresses. It may make for interesting headlines, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really affect the quality of our lives. We don't lose our jobs. Uh, our churches aren't shut down. I don't think a lot of people outside of those who are immediately involved are losing sleep over what happens in the marriages of our government leaders, right or wrong. And this particular generation of Jews in our story 
were far removed from the days of old, the glory days of Israel's power and obvious proximity to God. They were living in a pagan society that they were born into. That's all they've ever known. In fact, when given the opportunity to go back to their homeland, most of them don't. <clears throat> so I don't think they were very shaken by these events in the royal court, at least not yet. And they certainly could not see the sovereign hand of God at work on their behalf through these events, which are going to become clear in the rest of the story. Okay? It, at this point, they're oblivious to all that God was actually doing for them through these circumstances, which is profound. Right? He, at the time, must have seemed far removed to them from their daily lives, to these Jews born and raised in exile in a secular culture that did not even recognize their God. I have to believe that for them, what was happening in King Ahasuerus' court must have felt completely detached from any possibility of God moving in their daily lives. But listen, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Right? Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Obviously, we do not know, we can, cannot possibly know, all that God is doing in our lives and on our behalf at any given moment in time. It's why in Psalm 37, David says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers, but uh, be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He doesn't say commit your way to the Lord when things are going your way. Trust him when your circumstances are just like you want them to be. No, he just says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. I love those last seven words, trust in him, and he will act. In other words, when you find yourself surrounded by unbelievers, living in a culture where people neither understand nor want to understand your faith, and you're in your current circumstances, you feel an eternity away from God, even when he seems so far removed from you in your daily life, trust in him, even then. Continue to do the work he set before you. Stay committed, stay faithful to him, and he will act. Why? Because God is not far from us. That's what we're going to see in the weeks ahead. God working and moving on behalf of his people when they had no idea. Once they committed themselves to him, they begin to see him act. And not only is he not far from us, by the way, He's always working on our behalf today because his word promises us that when we commit our ways to the Lord, when we trust in him, he will act. Okay, this, in, this entire set of circumstances that is unfolding in the royal court is going to have profound life and death ramifications for God's people in the very near future. And yet at this point, they don't have a clue. It doesn't seem like God is doing anything do you ever feel that way? Nothing could seem farther from relevant to their lives or have anything to do with God being near them or working on their behalf than the fact that the king's marriage is falling apart. It may be scandalous, 
But what does that have to do with the God of Israel working for the salvation of his people? And yet that's exactly what was happening. God's hand was fast at work on behalf of his people in the most unlikely circumstances. See, God was not far from them then, and he is not far from us today. He's always working on our behalf. In Philippians 2, 12 through 15, Paul writes to the church, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. In other words, no matter how bad your situation may appear to be, don't lose heart, don't grumble, don't complain. Yes, you're living in a secular society where there is evil in the world that is conspiring against you. That is true, but it's just as true that God is working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So commit your ways to him. Trust in him, even when he seems far from you. And what what will he do? He will act. Because no matter what's happening in your life, God is not far from us which is wonderful, and yet I'm not sure we always believe that because somewhere along the way, we got this idea that our proximity to God, our closeness to God is somehow reflected in the favorability of our circumstances. In other words, the more favorable our circumstances are, the better off that our circumstances appear to be, the closer we must be to God. Listen, that perspective is not born out in the pages of scripture or in the lives of believers from the first followers of God right up to today. And yet it's actually really common for Christians who find themselves in difficult circumstances to to ask God, where are you? Right, because there's an assumption in much of our church culture that if you're in a tough situation in life when nothing seems to be working out in your favor that somehow that must mean you've done something wrong somewhere along the way and now God is no longer working on your behalf because things aren't going well, that God has somehow left you or he's not close to you right now. Now look, it's true that disobedience to the will of God affects our relationship with God. There's a body of scripture that teaches us that when there are active patterns of disobedience in our lives, sin, that there can be consequences that follow, not the least of which is sometimes God not hearing our prayers. In John 9, 31, a blind man healed by Jesus proclaims to the religious Jews who are questioning him. He says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. The Jews understood that already. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Yet when we are in God's will, right? John assures us in 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So disobedience to God leads us outside of his will and sometimes into difficult circumstances, which is why James said to Christians, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. James 5, 16, Peter wrote to Christians, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. First Peter 3, 7. 
Plenty of other examples in scripture where believers are taught to practice repentance and confession with resulting effects of that repentance and confession being a closeness and intimacy with God restored, okay? Uh, And so in addition to those verses, Hebrews 12, Revelation 2, others address the need for believers to confess and repent when we sin. And and just a side note there, it's not that we need um, to get saved over and over and over again. I went to the altar every Sunday and I got saved like 498 times growing up, okay? Uh, No, what Jesus did on the cross is a completed work. So he doesn't go back to the cross every time we sin. Now he paid for it all at once. So that's a finished work. In 2 Corinthians 5, 19, Paul said in Christ God was reconciling uh, the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So his work that atoned for your sin, for my sin, is finished. He said as much on the cross. It is finished. Our work, however, which is to be obedient to God's will, is never finished this side of heaven, which again is why Paul says to obey God as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling in Philippians 2. So it's not that our work in being obedient to God is what saves us, it is his work alone that saves us. Our work ensures that our relationship with him and our communication with him remains unfettered, unobstructed, which is why John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So his work is a completed work, but we are still commanded by God to confess our sins and be obedient to his will. And so our disobedience to God, which is clearly outside of his will for us, directly affects our relationship with him. Uh, that's all true. So when people come to me and want to know why God feels far from them, why their prayers don't seem to be doing much, the first question I usually ask is, is there any unconfessed sin in your life? Or are you living in disobedience to his will in any area of your life? Because if you are, well then let's deal with that first and make sure that you're not outside of his will for your life. Let's make sure that your prayers are not being hindered by your own disobedience, right? That's why in the second half of James 5.16, we read earlier, James says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. In other words, he doesn't say that the prayer of a disobedient person has power. He says the prayer of a righteous person has great power. So it's important when God feels far from us that we examine our own hearts and answer that question honestly and then deal with any unconfessed sin if there is any, okay? However, If the answer to that question is no, there's no hidden or unconfessed sin in my life right now, then the next question I usually ask is, then why do you feel that God is far from you and in nearly every single instance, the person will then begin describing some set of unfavorable circumstances that they're experiencing that's ingrained in us, as if the favorability of our circumstances is somehow a litmus test in determining our proximity to God. We have to stop thinking like that, because it's not true. The Apostle Paul experienced some of the most difficult and disheartening circumstances imaginable precisely when God was as close to him as he could possibly be. Okay, the favorability of your circumstances has absolutely nothing to do with your proximity to God. In fact, at times, it's just the opposite. Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to who? The brokenhearted. But we assume that he's far from us 
when we're going through a really hard time. Listen, God is not far from us just because life isn't working out how we wanted it to or thought that it would. And we're gonna see that in the next few weeks in this story, the, the scandal in the king's palace between him and his wife, it had God's sovereign and invisible fingerprints all over it for the sake of his people. The Jews couldn't see it. They were living in exile in a foreign country under pagan rulers who were squandering the nation's resources and committing every vulgar and dishonoring offense against each other inside the king's own court. Sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't it? And yet, while all of that nonsense was going on, God was fast at work for his people because he was never idle and he's always sovereign and he's always working which means he was using the sinful actions of pagan people to bring about a glorious result for his children, which they couldn't possibly see coming, particularly in the way that God was making it happen. To them, it was just another day in exile. Listen, be careful where you let your mind go in regard to what's going on in our country today. Be careful. You don't give too much credit to the pagan secular forces of evil at work in this world, in government, and every other area of culture. Be careful. You don't give too much weight to what's happening there and walk around in fear and anger and anxiety. You understand God is sovereign over all of it. He's bigger than any force working against us in this world. And by the way, he is at work for you right now in all of it. Even when it seems like it's all falling apart and coming unraveled, things aren't going the way you want it to, be careful. Guard your heart and your mind. Because even though it doesn't seem like anything is happening at that level of leadership that's godly or remotely good or righteous, God is at work. We just can't see it. God was busy working all things back then together for good as we're gonna see for those who called according to his purpose, it's the same today. You see, the favorability of our circumstances is not the measuring stick for how close or how far God is to us. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Okay, your circumstances in your own life may be really difficult right now. Sometimes the world is all too happy to tell you why. <laughs> in fact, sometimes even your closest friends and family are all too happy to tell you why your life isn't working out the way you wanted it to. Uh, just ask Job about that. Sometimes people love to tell you what you're doing wrong and why God is not blessing you. Right? When, when what we should be doing is putting our arms around each other and saying, I don't know why things aren't the way you want them to be either, but I'm not leaving your side until we bombard heaven with enough prayers to either get some answers or get some peace. Because the reality is your circumstances have nothing to do with your proximity to God, but they have everything to do with God's plan for your life, which is a good plan to bless you to love you, to strengthen you, to mature you, to shape you, to work through you, and to give you life in abundance. You may not see it today. It may be well in the future before you can look back and understand how he was working on your behalf during that really tough time in your life, but there's one truth that you can take to the bank every time your life becomes difficult or uncertain. The Lord is near to all who call on him. 
God is not far from us. In fact, he's fast at work on your behalf. So don't despair. Rather, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him through all of it. And he will act. Because no matter what you're going through today, he's closer than you think. Let's pray.